Good morning and praise the Lord, saints. I uh, tried, I'm, I'm a baby boomer. I tried to print my message out at the hotel, and the hotel printer decided they did not want to act right. So I'm going to try a millennial trick and read from this, but I might have to close my notes and just go off script, but that's all right. I want to bring you greetings. Uh, yes, from your brothers and sisters on the other side of the state, Philadelphia, where I was born and raised, and my son was raised, born and raised partly. It's good uh, to be here with you. I also want to bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters on the other side of the country. Um, Soaring Oaks Presbyterian Church, where I've served as pastor uh, for a little bit more than six years. We're located in a small city called Elk Grove, which is right below Sacramento. And uh, like you, our brothers and sisters in Philly, our brothers and sisters in Cali, we are all, by the grace of God, called into this wonderful, wonderful, um, what we call entity called the Church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we get to show something beautiful to ourselves, to our children, and to our society. And that's what I would like uh, just for um, a few moments to talk with you this morning. Please turn in your Bibles or your devices or your bulletin to Ephesians. And I'm going to start at the end of 3.20 and read through chapter 4, verse 3. Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 20 through Ephesians 4, verse 3. This, dear ones, is the word of God. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly and all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That, dear ones, will, in fact, in the reading of God's Word, mustard greens, kumquats, quail, Cactus pears, black garlic, tomatoes, zucchini, duck breast. For those perhaps familiar with uh, the reality show Chopped, those are some of the ingredients of the baskets that chefs are given to prepare either an appetizer, a main course, or a dessert. For those unfamiliar of the show Chop, it's from, of course, the Food Network, 
And it is a competition in which four either professional or amateur chefs are brought together in an elimination competition to see who can in fact make a dish that has the best presentation and the best taste presented before three professional restaurateurs or food critics or chefs and win $10,000. They're not told the ingredients that they will use before they make and prepare the dish. The way it happens is they stand right behind a basket. They're told to open the basket and to begin to take out the ingredients, which many times, of course, are differing and disparate ingredients, things that you would not necessarily think would go together in any type of meal. And then they're giving a set time of 15, 20, or 30 minutes to make a meal that presents well, that tastes well, so that they can move on to the next round and eventually be crowned, at least for that show, chopped champion and walk away with $10,000 and the knowledge and I guess the pride of knowing that, at least on that episode, they were the best chef there. Now, among other things, there are two, and forgive the pun, key ingredients that you as a chef, should you decide that having heard this, that you believe that you're good enough, and there might be one, two, or three of you out there, if you believe that you're good enough to go on shop that are absolutely indispensable keys to your effectiveness and success. The first is a bottom line understanding that you need, you must have, you absolutely need to use every ingredient in that basket. You may have no idea of how they're going to actually go together or come together, but you simply cannot look at, say, zucchini and say, I just can't see how that's going to mix with black garlic, so therefore I'll leave it off. You need each and every ingredient. Failure, failure to leave off one of the basket ingredients is a certain, almost certain way that you will, in fact, be chopped and not go to the next round. In fact, the only way that you perhaps avoid that is if one of your opponents forgets to cook the chicken, serves raw chicken to the judges, the judges cannot eat the dish, and so therefore you are saved. But there is another, I'll say, ingredient. Before you even approach the competition, every single chef who has been on shop, whether he or she is a professional and accomplished, own their own restaurant, whether they have a food truck, or whether they're simply an amateur, making dishes at home for family and friends, they must have a burning, zealous passion for cooking. If you approach cooking with a nonchalant, cavalier, whatever attitude, chop is not for you. You will not make it. It is too hard. It is too difficult. 
sometimes the ingredients seem completely over the top and too crazy, you will simply not feel that it is worth your time, energy, and effort. Dear ones, I want to propose to you this morning that if we are going to continue to pursue the fullness of God's call for what I call redemptive ethnic unity, that blessed unity across ethnic lines, which in light of the gospel, God calls his people to express and enjoy as a witness of the beauty, the power, and the wisdom of God, we will need at least two key ingredients that flow from the gospel, one of which is our recognition that we absolutely need each other. We cannot believe, whether in any society, but especially in our society, we cannot afford to try to move forward with the notion that there is a part of the body of Christ that we simply do not need, that, that we can carry a witness, whether it's in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Elk Grove, or wherever, that we can carry forward a witness that genuinely shows God's power, his beauty, his wisdom in Jesus Christ. That we have a bottom line need for each other. But also, we must have a love, a passion, and a deep, deep respect and reverence for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for Christ's call to become connected with the living God through faith in his sinless life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and therefore to be connected with one another as a necessary outflow of our connection with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. We must have a deep, passionate, reverent respect for what the living God has done in the redemption of his people through Jesus Christ. It must cause us great awe and wonder that he would do so in the way that he did so and then bring us up in it in such a way that he uses us to promote it to demonstrate it, to display it, and to enjoy it. Now, Ephesians, more than likely it seems, was a circular letter that Paul sent to several churches in that part of the world one of the times when he was in prison. What's interesting about Ephesians, as it, as it reads through Ephesians 1, Paul never seems to really point out an obvious problem that's going on in any of the churches or the church that he wrote to, as is, for example, he did in 1 Corinthians and Galatians. It seems that Paul wrote this letter to encourage, to reveal, to remind, to push forward to the church that God's supreme glory, as it culminates in the sinless life, 
sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the main theme, not only of this letter, but of scripture, of history, of salvation, of our lives. We see this glory, this, this focus on God's beautiful brilliance and his utter weightiness and importance embraced and promoted to the world and the spiritual forces around us by God's church, which is the vehicle through which he's decided to display his glory. Again, listen to the word of God from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him, who was able to do far more abundantly than all, we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Earlier in that same chapter, Paul revealed a key aspect of that glory, which is the unity of God's people, which Paul began to spell out in the second half of the second chapter of Ephesians, culminating in a deeply connected unity written of in Ephesians 3, 6. Again, hear the word of God. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. One of the main things the living God has decided to show through the gospel is the definitive connection of his people in and through Jesus Christ because that, he says, gives him glory. That highlights his brilliant beauty, his supreme wisdom, and his utter weightiness. Now, as he reached Ephesians 4, Paul, moved along by the Spirit, revealed to us some key ways in which we grasp this reality so that our witness can demonstrate God's wisdom, God's power, God's beauty, and his relevance. He, he began by telling us to walk worthy of our calling. It is to live out our lives in this particular manner. And what especially should captivate us about what Paul wrote and how he told us to do this in this manner is he does not therefore go back and exhort us, which as Reformed Presbyterians, we probably would have liked a little bit more. He does not exhort us to go back and think about theology a little bit more. He does not say, have a few more Reformed theology conferences to mull it over. He doesn't say, sit down and write a few more books to talk and tell and expound this theology. No, he says, become heavily involved and invested in living, breathing people who sometimes you don't understand, sometimes perhaps make you angry, sometimes frustrate you, 
sometimes hurt you. Paul's exhortation with respect to our application of our reverence of what God has done means to push forward and push in to that connection with people, many of whom are not like us naturally. As I said before, when I've I've talked about these things, it would be, humanly speaking, listen up, humanly speaking, for me, it would be relatively easy to form connections with people born in the mid-60s in Philadelphia, who were then born and raised in West Philadelphia, who on the playground spent many of their days, (laughs) who like football, African-American history, and Star Trek. (laughs) We would have plenty to talk about, much in common, would have had many of the same experiences And so it could be, humanly speaking, relatively easy for me to join in with them and have community with them, have communion with them, do life with them. But the living God calls us to something supernatural and to go deep and deeper with those who, humanly speaking, they simply are not like us but to recognize that who we have in common is so much greater than some of our distinctions. So he says, walk worthy of your calling. Do so out of a deep respect for this calling. Do so not only because of one's individual Salvation, but what God is doing cosmically with his redemption and where it is leading us. And he starts with some, what we could look at is relatively simple, and yet as we move into this, some things that we know, we know we need the power of the Spirit to do this. He says, with all humility. The idea behind this biblical kind of humility is the focus of putting someone else's Needs, interests, issues before ours. It says that it is not my calling to always be right, but it is my calling to always be loving. I really like how one brother put this in the context of marriage as he was speaking to a group of us once. And he says that, and, and again, you are Reformed Presbyterian, you might get this a little bit more. We, we like to be right in our theology. We like to be right when we discuss our theology. We like to be right when we argue our theology. He says, I was bringing that mindset of always having to be right into my marriage, and it was causing a lot of struggle and trouble in my marriage. And he says, one day I just had to wake up and ask myself, do I want to be right or do I want to be married? <laughs> There are times you have to ask yourself, they're going to choose the marriage of the way that I can wait. Dear ones, as we move forward in grasping
us and beginning to form those deeply connected relationships, there are times when we're going to have to take the foot off the gas and say, hold it, hold it, hold it. At this point in our conversation or the relationship, am I more focused and interested in being right or being involved in the relationship? Humility says, I will put the interest, the issues, the needs of my brothers and sisters, especially as we begin these beautiful, redemptive cross-cultural relationships before my own, that I'm willing to listen and to serve them by listening and not simply by asserting what I would believe are my rights or my privileges or my viewpoint. It is that attitude that Christ had for us. Listen to what Paul wrote concerning this in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. One of the ways we can begin to practice this kind of humility, dear ones, is by looking at the issues and interests of those who differ from us in human terms for the sake of the gospel. It is by saying, I'm going to love someone who is different from me and love them as a whole person. That I recognize that though they may have left their historic cultural heritage churches to come and fellowship with me and we thank the Lord for that, that that does not mean that they've left behind their love for their people, their history, their culture, their heritage, and their view of things. That loving them means I need to take all of that into account and love them completely. Following humility, Paul strongly encourages saints to embrace the virtue of gentleness. Gentleness, simply put, is the intentional use of words, speech, tone, and body in such a way that we communicate that we care for the person, for the emotions, for the psyche, for the soul of another. It says that I will not engage in this ongoing process of unity in such a way that I must dominate others, especially when we're in conflict, especially when I don't understand. Paul speaks of gentleness in Thessalonians as how a nursing mother cares for her child. It says that my brother and my sister are of great value to me. The relationship that I've been providentially brought in to enjoy with them is of great value to me. And that even if I'm convinced that they are wrong on a particular point or particular issue, I will still engage with them, taking into account that I must not beat them down. 
I must not humiliate God. I must always invite them in. I want to treat them the way I'd like to be treated when I mess up. You know, I still I tell the story from time to time, even though it happened a long time ago. Um, my family and I, we used to vacation in the Outer Banks with some good friends of ours. And as we vacationed there, we'd have to make sure we went by the Walmart before we got to the vacation home because it was about a half hour drive away or so. And you had to pick up everything. Of course, usually we forgot some things and we'd have to make another trip back. Well, one day, um, that happened. We had to make another trip back. And, and my wife said, be sure to get me a scarf. Because to tie it around my hair. Just make sure you get that. She said some other things. But she said, be sure you get the scarf. Of course, I'm all over the place. I'm just there to have a good time. I'm not listening because I'm a husband. So I'm not listening. We get all the way up to Walmart. We do all the shopping. It takes us about an hour. The, the, for whatever reason, the request of the scarf was completely out of my mind. I got everything else. Literally, everything else on the list. Except the main thing I was supposed to get. I get back to the house, joyful, ready to have a good time. She looks at me, okay. I'm looking at the bag and getting stuff out. Where's the scarf? saying it simply wasn't as important as it should have been. And she just looked at me and said, that's okay. It's all right. We're going to have a good time. She treated me with amazing gentleness. How do we want to be treated when we're wrong? That shapes and focuses how we treat our brothers as we move to and move through and move in to these relationships. Gentleness is the way we see our Lord treat those who came to him broken in sin. It's the way that we so value how he treats us when we come to him and confess our sins. Gentleness may be one of the primary virtues needed when we experience and we will experience conflict, especially as we pursue redemptive ethnic unity. On the heels of gentleness is the virtue of patience. In this context, patience is the virtue of being willing to wait for God to be at work in our brothers and sisters as we ourselves walk this life and walk worthy of the calling we received. Patience says, I believe God is at work in my brothers and sisters to the extent that though we are not there yet, by the grace of God, we are going to continue and consistently make progress to what God has called us to. And yes, at times the journey may be difficult. We may share things with one another that's going to take a while for us to grip and grasp and work through and pray through, but we will still do so together. 
Patience is absolutely necessary when perhaps we're willing and ready to pull back, to give up, to say, you know, it's just too hard. It's not worth it. Can we, can we just do something else? Patience is what parents have for their young children is they're learning to walk. How might we react if we knew a set of parents and as their young children were just beginning to walk, just beginning to take a few steps, and as children who are just beginning to walk and take a few steps or want to do, they stumble and fall. And then the parent went over to them, towered over to them, looked down and said, you know, figure it. Give it up. You'll never get it. You'll never walk. Just look, just crawl. <laughs> I'll put your, your food over there. We'll get it. We'd be mortified because we know that by the grace of God, given time, pretty soon the only words to that child from the parent will be slow down, <laughs> stop running. I, I, I told you. Why? Well, because we believe God's creative life in that child begun at the moment of conception, we'll move on and move on and move on. God's creative life in us, begun by the power of the Spirit, at the moment of our spiritual con conception, will move on and move on. He is at work. Yes! It's not what we want to be now. But that doesn't mean we give up. You know, we, we, I get this question often in terms of, well, when do we stop? When do we know we've arrived? When, when can we say, okay, we, we've checked that box? And, and I answer it in a similar way that I answered um, a question this morning in Sunday school. And I do it like this. And I say, men, brothers, fix the date of your wedding in your mind right now. And every man could definitely, right now, fixed the exact date of his wedding. Brothers, as you're looking at me, please don't have a curious look on your face. That is, that, that'd be a bad look. Don't, don't kind of look like you're fiddling and fumbling. Come on. Like, no, I got this one. Now I ask them, okay, now that you fixed the exact date of your wedding, now tell me the exact date when you and your bride achieve perfect unity that you no longer have to work toward that in your marriage. Dear ones, Christ is patient with us. Christ calls us to enjoy and be patient with one another. A couple more and then we'll, we'll close. This idea of loving tolerance, the fact that there are, in fact, distinctions that aren't necessarily sinful, that aren't necessarily going to go away, but that I'm uncomfortable with. And sometimes we have to be honest 
with ourselves and others. There's some distinctions about people. There's some things about them that I might not be comfortable with. I might not be comfortable with their views on some things. I might not be comfortable with some of their ways, and yet we walk worthy by not simply marginalizing, marginalizing them because of their distinctions, but by actually and actively pursuing them in love through those distinctions. We kind of almost want people to know that our identity in Christ is so secure and so concrete that our other differences, though important to us, they cannot overshadow us. We want people to see us out at the restaurant together. This wonderful, beautiful, multi-ethnic community called the church, sitting and talking and really dealing, we want them to look at and marvel and wonder, like, 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 how? <laughs> and then we get an opportunity to walk them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say this, especially as we bring and God brings us minorities into our churches. Don't minimize or marginalize their differences. Don't ask them to do that. Don't give off subtle cues that, well, if you're really growing in Christ, if you're really maturing in the Lord, you will think this way, act this way. Vote this way. Let's be clear and be sure that it is on Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is taken sand. Part of what that means is I hold firmly to Christ. I hold loosely to my differences. And I don't just put up with I actively and go and engage those who have differences that aren't going to necessarily change. Last one, and then we'll close with this. Paul wrote that we have to have an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This overall unity, which included this unity across ethnic lines, which Christ brought with his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his bodily resurrection, that means that we have been cemented together as his people and we're going on in a direction where humanity, redeemed humanity will end up before the Lamb and before the throne of God we will stand as Revelation 7 reads with palm branches in our hands symbolizing we have victory over sin wearing white robes symbolizing our sins have been washed away and yet John, as he saw that scene unfold to him in Revelation 7, he still was able to note distinctions because for whatever reason, the living God just thought that it would be wise, good, and beautiful to create a humanity that expressed itself in wonderful diversity and to see that diversity throughout all eternity. And that's why we say by the grace of God, if you want to know how humanity's age-long problem of racial strife, hostility, malice, bitterness, and indifference will finally and fully be solved and was solved at the cross and culminated in the new heaven and new earth in God's multi-ethnic community called the church that worships him.
in Jesus' name. And if you want to be a part of that, if you want to see that, if you want to experience that, your only hope is placing your faith in Jesus Christ. We must recognize that we have sinned. We may have sinned a little, we may have sinned a lot. We may have thought we've not sinned in any sense of a way in racial racism or anything like that, but we have still sinned. We may believe that we've been the objects of sinful racism. And that may be very much true, but we have still sinned. And the only way to escape that punishment is placing our faith in the sinless life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that he died for us. He stood in our place. He endured the wrath of God for our sins. And it's with that knowledge that we are eager. We're enthusiastic. We run to the opportunity of maintaining the unity. We don't let things that are temporal divide us. We don't say, well, it's a bit too hard. Yes, it is, because you can't do it in your own human natural strength. We need the supernatural power of the Spirit. But by the grace of God, we, through His Spirit, by Christ's example, through prayer, it can be shown and it can be done. You know, as I close, I often tell a story between eagerness and perhaps I'll get around to it. My mother and father would tell me to clean my room when I was young. I'd be like, you know, you know, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll get to it. You know, I'll, it, I'll, I'll get to it. It, it. It'll happen. But then I started listening again to the Commodores and Stevie Wonder and Billy Joel watching TV. And, you know, those who don't know who those people were. <laughs> Jesus. Help us. They come up to the room again, look around, like, what's going on? The room's not, what, the room's not, clean the room! Finally, after the third time, and the voices were really raised, and the look on the face was really stern, I discerned that I should clean this room. But then there were times when my father Charles and my mother Laverne would come up and say, hey, you know we're going to Great Adventure today. You need to clean your room before we go. And then something happened. I got up, my change fell off. <laughs> I got to the room quickly, cleaned it thoroughly, did it enthusiastically because you know, I wanted to go to Great Adventure. I didn't want to get left behind. I can use that vernacular. Being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, it says, we look for ways to build our unity. We look for ways to maintain our unity. We don't look for reasons and excuses to walk away from our unity. We don't do that. I'll close with this. Every one of these virtues we can see in the ministry of Jesus going to the cross for us. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and unity. How deeply did Jesus maintain 
and create unity with us. He did it so deeply that he was willing to take on our sin at the cross. That's how unified he became to us. That's how much he identified with us. He took on our great debt of sin. And finally, there are times when even the judges of child are amazed and taken aback at some of the dishes that are created. They look at them and, and, and one judge, once in a while, they'll say, you know, you took disparate ingredients that seem to have nothing in common and you put together something in 30 minutes that is absolutely fantastic. He says, I would put this on my menu at my restaurant. Think of this, dear ones. If chefs in 30 minutes can create something so tantalizing, so delicious, so amazing, that a professional judge would say, I would put this on my menu. Think of what the living God can do with his people through the power of the Spirit, the work of the gospel, and the deep reverence and respect for who he is and what he's done. morning and praise the Lord, saints. I uh, tried, I'm, I'm a 